Think about all the training that they've gotten rid of OJG and everybody went to computer-based training. Oh, that's going to save us all this money. But really, how good is that training? And if you're not a learning organization, it's constantly, what's the next piece? Got to keep yourself, you know, upskilled. And especially in the next industrial revolution, you're going to fall by the wayside because there's so many things that you've got to know and you got to continue to upskill the team. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Marty Groover. He is a scale-up and he works with Herb Cogliano, who's his coach in the US. Uh, they are growing their business 50% year over year. So absolutely fantastic business, growing really fast. And they are in the business of digital transformation. They implement SAP. So I had this, I've never met anyone who's enjoyed or had anything positive to say about SAP, although they're a huge organization and have a huge market share. So we dug into what Marty's secret is to delivering successful SAP implementations for clients. That's not where he started. He started in autonomous weapon systems in the US Navy, and then he went to work for Caterpillar, where he did a number of transformational projects for Caterpillar. We talk about the factory that he ran or the factory that he worked in, and they would lose one of those massive dumper trucks. They just wouldn't know where they were. So they had to put in place a whole automation tracking, live real-time situations. And he said he just, whilst he was in the Navy, he thought, like everybody else, that their systems were somewhat antiquated and that civilian life would have better tools. And then he turned to the Caterpillar, Fortune 100 business, and he found they had no real-time information. And he said, you know, but in, in the Navy, you'd have a fighter aircraft and it would be in contact with a team on the ground and they would be targeting enemy positions. And he said, Caterpillar had nothing like that. They would, they would lose a dumper truck in the factory. And sometimes there were missing parts. And so things would slip and quality was poor and there would be overruns and customers would be disappointed. And he decided to fix it all. So they fixed the problem at the Caterpillar plant. And then when he, he went on with one of his colleagues from Caterpillar to form the SAP implementation business that he's the CEO of. So how do you run a successful digital transformation? He said to me, look, there is never an opportunity to avoid the valley of despair when you turn a new system on, but you can make it shorter and you can make it less painful and you can give people hope that they will get out the other side. What you have to do is you have to make it so that they understand what's in it for them. In fact, he said, well, you can listen to what he said so that you know the secret of successful digital transformations in your workplace. I had a great conversation chatting to Marty. I'm sure you'll love it.
Great to be here with you. My name is Marty Groover. A little bit about my background. So I'm a partner and a CTO in a company called C5MI. We do technology for companies for Industry 4.0. So anywhere from a core ERP system did before all the way up to full autonomy. A little bit about my background, a retired Navy officer, hence the main for my book, Speed of Advance. And really what I learned working on weapon systems that were fully automated. And then I got into manufacturing at Caterpillar when I retired. I started seeing the, the synergy that I had from working with these automated systems. Now I'm working in manufacturing. I'm like, why didn't I have these tools? And it, you know, I just, this book was inside of me. I just wanted to, you know, have these automated data live, like I had with my radar systems and all that in the military. And I thought I was behind the curve a little bit. You know, when I was in the military, you get out, you always think, well, we're behind, we're behind. But I was like, wow, I need these tools in manufacturing. And that's where I started to find some of these principles that I learned in the military that, that is in the book about how to convert people, process of technology. And we started doing these live pilot house sort of industry 4.0 projects at Caterpillar. And we liked it so much. We started this company six years ago, which is amazing. We're still going strong on it and really believe, you know, what's coming on with this new technology, so to speak, IIoT and all the buzzwords are really going to make a difference going forward with manufacturing, logistics, and supply chains. That's a little bit about me. That's brilliant. And I suppose you, when you say you retired, you don't mean you sort of, you just mean you retired naval officer rather than stopped working. And what were the, specifically the things that you didn't have at Caterpillar? Was it the automation, the live nature of the systems? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. So in 2004, I was in the Persian Gulf on the John F. Kennedy, and we had this system called a common operational picture. But I could see my aircraft live over Iraq connecting with Marines on the ground without giving too much away. But I, it was amazing at that time in 2004, I could do that. And then I go to Caterpillar. I'm like, I can't even find out what's happening during the shift where I can go down because I was a manufacturing engineer. So responsible for making large bulldozers. And if I knew about it in the shift, I might be able to fix it. I find out at the end of the shift, you know, I already missed my build or you know, we had these big quality events that we needed to fix. So this is where I started translating. We need a cop, we need a common operational picture of manufacturing. We need that live view of what's happening as it's happening so we can solve those problems. You were able to build that whilst you were at Caterpillar? We did. We actually built some live tracking of, of material handling equipment. We put in a real-time location tracking system at the end of one of our large assembly lines that built under uh, excavators a day. Imagine you could lose an eight ton excavator, but you could it literally someone's walking around with a pad of paper, trying to find this. So we put real time location tracking, you know, RFID on these systems and even outside we, we could track them. And now we made it smart where that track, not only would you see the excavator, would it start blinking when it was getting close to the time that it had to hit its committed ship date and somebody could pull up and see what was left, what work was left and when should it get through it? I mean, it was brilliant because now it was intuitive for the operators, but it also told them, hey, go work on this one. This is the most important one instead of them making a decision and maybe not knowing how important it was to get this one and where to find it. Better yet, I mean, they basically took a Google map. If you go find it, all right, now I'll get it through the final checkout process. How big was the plant? 800,000 square foot, plus two acres out back where they did the testing of the, 
machines and got it ready to ship. So I know it's the funniest thing you think you could lose an elephant, but believe me, we'd walk around sometimes, where the heck did this machine go? It, w- it was brilliant. And we even tested on a vice president. We figured if the vice president could use a system to find it, there you go. No small children were available, so you had to use a vice president. And you obviously your system's also looking into the supply chain. Because one of the things that I guess the historically that would happen would be somebody would expect to be working on a truck go to the parts bin, the parts aren't there. They should have been working on a different truck because somebody somewhere knew the parts were en route and hadn't arrived. Exactly. And that was one of our other projects where we put live tracking on our material handling equipment to our line side. So we had a captive line. Me, once it got on a line, it was moving in sequence, right? And you had to get the parts just in time to the line, the parts kits and all that. And we were having probably 50 hot parts a day on a line, which is total disruption to assembly line. And we put the system in where we could see what the next machine was coming better for the people that were responsible for delivering material and how many of the tickets they have picked already. So we could start seeing that process. We got it down so well that the operators could see, oh, this is that quad I'm supposed to do this. We didn't even need the expediters. And it's amazing how much safer it is and how much better it runs and the better quality you get because the parts are always there. And so what was the number one metric? that you shifted? Probably our committed ship date. So that's a big deal with our customers and our and our dealers is that date that we promise to deliver that. Just like any of us as consumers, you know, on Amazon or whoever says, hey, it's supposed to come there that day. It means a lot to you to get it on that day, especially the dealers making, you know, customer requirements. So we went for probably 60% on time, committed ship date, hitting those dates to 98%. And did the ship times get shorter as well? Yes, we did reduce the wait times and the ship times because now, because we saw where they were in the process, which was another benefit, the shippers could now assign vehicles to them because they knew they could trust Tendi. So instead of it coming off the line and waiting a week for a truck, it's like rolls off straight onto a truck. Okay. So we reduced the lead time days and how much. So before maybe we had 10 days of products sitting there on our field that we had the area that we held for the vehicles, the place where you get them shipped to, where you see them in the pen, the distribution center. And now we could reduce the number of days down to five. So it really reduced the cost and the holding cost for those products. Plus the dealers, which they really love, instead of getting on a call and call, and they could just look in their system and go, yep, it's going to be off the line here in a few minutes. Did you end up being able to do a retrospective return on investment for the project? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you spec the project, how much did you think it was going to cost? We said, we told the leaders, if we could take two days of lead time out, it's worth this much money, right? Or number of machines, days that we had, two days. We ended up taking five days out. So five times 100, 500 machines. So you just do the math on that. And the committed ship date hits you know, with the customer satisfaction, you can't even measure that. Getting the stuff when you say you're going to get, it's a big deal. And so all of this, you said at the beginning, this is sort of the fourth industrial revolution. What does that mean? Well, it's really the next phase we're going into with Internet of Things and all the di- cloud computing and the capacity that we have to do machine learning and analytics now. The cost of it's come down. So the Silicon Age started in the late 80s. And that was the PC you know, revolution that came along, you know, we first got IBMs and Apple machines. Think about the productivity gains that we received. A lot of people like to say, hey, you know, certain people came in office, made some decisions while the economy got better. But really, the late 70s are kind of where we're at now, high interest rate. But the reason everything got so much more productive was because of the PCs. 
Now it's really measuring the physical world to make it match up with the transactional world. The transactional world, we got about as much incremental value out of that PC, the data that we get. Now it's connecting it with the internet of things, measuring devices, really seeing that physical world match up. So for instance, I'll just say your inventories and in, in a supply chain. You knew where everything was, how long it took you to get it. It was automatically measured. All that data using IIoT and machine learning. Now the systems can automatically adjust lead times without a human ever getting in the way. And that's really what you want so that you're always just in time and you know how long it takes to get everything. Then you can, like, this is where Amazon wins every day. They're available to promise. And they've got it down to a fine art form. They measure every step of the process, you know, by time stamps with their systems. And that's how they can say, when you hit that button, it's going to get to you in this many days because they've already measured every step of the process. And that's really where the fourth industrial revolution, there's all sorts of things like that that are going to be automated. And Amazon's accelerating it because of the speed of retail. Retail's really leading the way for manufacturing and supply chain, the way they're going to have to go in the future be able to survive yeah yeah that full end-to-end integration it's like the dealer it's really like you saying the dealer's there he's got a customer in front of him they specify a machine the system gives them a committed build date and 98 percent of the time he's going to get it when he says he's going to get it and then all the parts and everything else is just happens in the background and then it's all of it right it's the measurement of the machines to get the performance out of when you predictive maintenance so they don't break down and cause disruptions. It's quality measurements so that you'll have quality defects. They have to go back and fix. You see there's going to be a quality event before it happens. So it's really about getting on a maturity curve, going from visibility, adaptability, predictability, then full autonomy. And that's what Industry 4.0 will break. And it's sort of like in my book, I talk about how the speed of air warfare got so fast that humans couldn't track missiles anymore. They were starting, you know, they were going so fast, the systems had to be automated. So the Navy built the Aegis weapon system, which automated so many things a human couldn't do anymore. And that's really where we're going with our supply chains, manufacturing, everything. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen without a human doing it. And these systems now can do the math. The algorithms are good enough to start measuring itself and then making decisions without the human in a loop and just use the human by exception where you need them. Now, a lot of people are afraid, is that going to take, get rid of everybody's job? It's not. It's just going to, just like any other technology we've dealt with over the years, it's just going to shift what people do. And now people are freed up to solve problems instead of just living in a drudgery of trying to pull data out, measure it, figure out what's going on. And here, 10 things have already happened that you haven't figured out what happened last Tuesday. And you got a hundred more things. It's just like, it's, it's a chase that you never win. Well, you're going to still need people because ships are still going to get stuck in the Suez Canal, right? So the algorithm says these parts that we ordered from X take X days to arrive and then there's a storm in the Pacific or something and they're going to be later and you're trying to solve a problem. Yep, exactly. But much more interesting work. I like the way you said that. Yeah, much more engaging work instead of the drudgery, right? Got a question on air warfare then, right? Say... Do you end up with totally autonomous planes fighting other autonomous planes? I mean, is it drones fighting drones? Is that where we end up? Is there any point in putting a pilot in an airplane? There is because there's some things that a human can do that a machine can't, but I can guarantee you it will be a combination of human and machines working together to spread the capability of the human farther and to be able to do more with the technology. So I don't 
at some point there probably will be, but at that point we probably won't be doing kinetic warfare anymore. It will be a different type of warfare, right? <laughs> right. Something else. Cyber warfare. And so do you only, do you and your firm only do projects in manufacturing? No, we do them in warehouse. We've got a, a large government um, project we're doing right now. So it's warehousing, it's finance. It could be, it just depends. It's really around the SAP system is our core system that we use. If you're familiar with that ERP system, it's 77% of the world's transactions supposedly go through an SAP product, but that's where all of our corporate experience is. And so we're working in government and commercial world on projects. It just depends, you know, what we're working on. So it could just be straight warehousing. It could be warehousing and manufacturing. It could be just asset management. We recently did a project with a company in Indonesia doing predictive maintenance on their mining. Okay. And any managing of sort of implementation, software development teams or consulting teams? Yes, that's what we do. We, we have a, a development team in India that helps us do a lot of our projects. And then on our government side, since we have to use certain people, obviously with different clearances, we have whole teams there that are doing the implementation for Defense Logistics Agency, which is a $40 billion, you know, government procurement arm that provides warehouses and, and procures a lot of the material that military services. Does anybody have a happy SAP implementation? Just because if they are, I'd love to meet them because so far I've never met anybody who said, oh yeah, we did SAP. It was great. That actually is funny enough. I used SAP in the Navy and I had the miserable piece of it. And you always do when you have to learn a new system. I don't care what, it, you can say SAP system, but it doesn't matter. They, but that SAP system, you could win with it all day. So I learned how to use it in the Navy and I, I automated a lot of recording. The power of it, and it's in my book, was I figured out how to use the business warehouse and automated reporting to fill out a PowerPoint for all the staffs and all the people that had to run all the budgets. And once I did that, I was like, this is really, anytime I push this button, I got these reports. I didn't have to put them together, spend hours. The light went off. I said, this, this was a great system. If you use it right, just like anything else, and if you understand it, because it, at the end of the day, it's an accounting system. But when you use it right, it's unbelievable. And then when I got a Caterpillar, I deployed another at a factory, best deployment at Caterpillar. And then I complained about the way they deployed it, whereas if you're more intentional, which I did in my factory, it was amazing. It turned around the whole factory. We were able to fix our quality, budgets, everything with it. Talk about that, because that at one level, that is a digital transformation project, right? I mean, that's really what you're doing there in the factory. So people, process, and technology, those three elements. Back years ago, I ran a CRM consultancy business, and we were chatting before we were recording about some of the pitfalls or, you know, what is it that people get wrong? Why? I think, I think the stats are somewhere like 65% of digital transformations don't deliver the return on investment. And here you are, you, not only do you deliver them like that, but you've personally delivered a few as well, even before you were getting, I was going to say getting paid to do it, but you know, you just, you had a, an appetite for fixing quality in the factory. And what did you do? Yeah. So key piece that's always missed is the people that know the process don't know SAP. People that know the SAP don't know the process. So it's like they just cross and miss each other until you, you implement it. Everybody thinks they're good, but we understand it. And then you implement it and then there's pain. They call it the valley of despair. So how do you overcome that? First, you train the people that are going to do it, how to use SAP. And you make the leaders understand, hey, this is just much you as it is the people on the shop floor, what I always tell people, the CFO doesn't really care what your spreadsheet says. He cares or she cares about what you punched out today, how you absorb the material and how, because it's a cost accounting system. 
But when you do understand it right, you can really win with it because you, you can make things so much better. And so the way I did it is I taught the people how to use it. I made them the people that actually did the process every day because they're the smartest people anyway, understand how to use SAP and why it's important. I told them all, I said, go home and tell your family, congratulations, you're all CPAs. They're like, what? I said, you're all certified production accountants. Yes, you will understand how this process works. But once you train them, they go, oh, that's what you want from me? Okay, I understand it. Then it's, it's magic. It really does work really well. So you were really training your process people to be your business analysts, and you were driving a lot of that SAP implementation. They were doing it themselves rather than having it done to them. That's the key. And then we used adoption metric to say, how were we doing it so that we could find where the gaps were, for instance, how many production orders were closed out? And if you don't know SAP or ERP, but it's the order to make whatever you're going to make. And that consumes all the material, consumes the labor, everything. That's why it's such a great cost accounting. But you have to close those out and you have to, you know, that's how you're managing your production. So it's really understanding how do you measure your production then executing to that schedule and then closing it out like you would any sort of accounting piece. It's always about finishing off that piece. If you understand that cycle, it makes it much easier to uh, to do the process then. And I know certainly back... You know, and, and that to me sounds like you would do it, that sort of quality report. So are people using the system? Is everything going through the system? How many exceptions have we got? And over time, trying to get that down to zero. I remember sitting, I'd sit down with customers all the time and they'd say, you don't understand. Our industry is unique. And in our unique industry, we are a unique business. We are the only people who do this process X the way we do it. Now, they're not saying that, they're driving value from doing the process differently to everybody else. They're just telling me that the process that we might have implemented for other people wasn't going to work for them. And I would say, are you sure you want to do it that way? Like if the rest of the industry does it differently, are you sure it's better? And they'd say, oh yes. And then of course, we'd implement their rubbish process and then they were stuck. But how do you get people to review their process before you freeze it in ERP? I could go for an hour just on this piece, but I love it. It made me laugh when you said that because everybody says, yeah, I'm different. You don't understand. I said, have you ever heard of supply chain operational reference score? So you're telling me you're different. So do you source material to do your process? And I don't care what your process is. They go, yes. And I said, do you do something with the process? So you make something, right? They said, yes. And then you deliver it, right? Yes. You might have some planning involved, right? And some enablement. Yes. Okay. You're not different. And so when you break it down that way, it's like, talk about the capabilities you need to execute your business process. Then I will do your SAP stuff. We're not going to jump right into SAP. What is your business process? What capability do you need? Because the last thing you want to do is customize a system, which everybody did. And there's a lot of big companies, I won't name them, but there's four or five big ones. We all know them. And they made a lot of money off from saying, sure, we can make it do that. But should they? Should they customize it? You should not. Because that technical debt costs you so much money. Out of the box, you, have to re you might have to re-engineer your business process. And that's probably the smartest thing you can do because if the system built that way, will this process work for your process? Yes. Okay. Then why customize it? Use it that way. And so that's probably our biggest, you know, beat the table thing with our customers. Don't customize only when you have to. Ah, oh, because then every time you do a major upgrade, it breaks. And it's great if you're one of those big four companies that has done all that customization work because it's, you, you having to go back and do it all again and all again and all again. So, you know, you, you're writing checks forever, but 
it's not good practice for the customer. In the book, you talk about silos in business. And is that, tell me more about why that's so difficult for the businesses. Well, again, working in the military, you can't have silos in the military. Everybody's got to be informed of what's going on, how they're going to do it, and what's your role. You're either support a group or support a group. And sometimes it flip-flops back and forth. Well, what I found when I got into manufacturing is a lot of times there's a group over here. They've got their own program. They're doing something. Let's just, I'm just making this up. But maybe it's the material group. And they say, don't tell me how to do my process. I'll deliver what I need to deliver to you. But they don't understand is maybe your process is sub-optimizing this process. And, you get, and guess what? You don't make something in silos. It all has to work together if you're going to make money. Now, we had to do it in the military so that we could you know, project power, do those things, our mission. But in a civilian world, if you don't understand that everything has to work together to get that final product out and people are in their own silos doing things, I've seen it so many times where, oh, well, we put this new process in. Thank you for not telling me about it. It just broke all my other processes. And when you do it in an ERP system, that's when a true nightmare, that's when you're stopping production, who did what? And then you find out this change was made and nobody tested it or they didn't understand the other processes that relied on it. So that's the silo piece that can't happen. And when you look at like an Amazon, everything in that business works together. There's nothing siloed. They can't, not, not to produce the results that they have. Even more of a reason why you've got to make sure the processes are going to work at the beginning. Well, and I suppose in the military, you've got, you know, people die if you get it wrong. We drop the bombs on our own people. What else you've got? You talk about a culture of creating a learning culture. One of the things that I took for granted, I guess, in the military is you're constantly being trained. And your captain or whoever, your job as a leader is always training people below you. Somebody's always training you. You're always making sure that people have knowledge. And then when you go out into the commercial world, and this has happened for a lot of companies, think about all the training that they've gotten rid of OJT and everybody went to computer-based training. Oh, that's going to save us all this money. But really, how good is that training? And if you're not a learning organization that's constantly, what's the next piece? What do you got to you've got to keep yourself, you know, upskilled, and especially in the next industrial revolution, you're going to fall by the wayside because there's so many things that you've got to know and you've got to continue to upskill the team. Have you managed to find a way to unlock that training budget? Because I know when we were doing transformations, and I still talk, lots of our clients are in the software development space, and, you know, the client says, no, I need the project to be cheaper. I'm just going to cut the training or have no training. Or if it's good enough, it'll be intuitive. Make it like Apple would. My grandmother can use Apple, doesn't need a manual, doesn't need training. And it's just, you know, it was just so soul destroying to to do a project and somebody skimped on the training because you don't have to teach people to do it because they're already, they already like the process they have today is already in place, but we have to retrain them. That's true. And you have to build. And when I say a learning organization, so you want to build those pillars of knowledge, we call them, you know, expert users or key users or whatever, but it's like, how do you get that one person in that one area that's expert? And then they've got to be able to cascade it, OJT, because there's no formal training going to do all the training. There's three different types of training. I'll get into that, but there's Formal training, systems training, like I understand the system I'm using, I understand how the buttons work, not necessarily how the transaction works, in it, but just how to maneuver around sort of like that whole you know, thing. Once we get into iOS, we understand how to maneuver around, but we still don't know how to do everything in it. 
but then it's the formal training, doing the process over and over the OJT and making sure that, that people learn it. And I do agree. I get in all the time. Well, we don't need this training. I said, you're going to regret it. And I don't know how many times they come back. Good match. Go live. We want more training. I said, okay, thank you. And then we try to make it intuitive. It's not just buttonology. You just teach somebody, hey, push this button. They're not going to know the why. You got to put the why in there, right? How do you capture that? In, do you help the clients develop the training? We'll do knowledge transfer. We'll help develop the training, help them understand the system, conduct maybe some of the first trainings, and then try to teach, like I said, teach a teacher or train a trainer with a, with a customer. And then sometimes they pay us for longer-term support and we'll continue to support them that way. But yeah, I've, I've had the same experience. Everybody wants to skip on the training and that's, and then they, they blame the system. Well, that system doesn't work. It's tough because that day one, when the system goes live, it's going to be painful for everybody because there's a lot of change. But if, and if people, if everybody really hates it on day one, even if it gets better, people still remember day one and they hated it. And it takes a long time before people stop bitching about it. That's very true. But if you do it right, with the people and they understand they're going to have that time. You're going to have this time. Just get over it. What can we do to help? And, and if you, if you do it the right way, that valley despairs, that's what we always try to say. How do we reduce that down to you're going to have it, but how do we manage it and then be positive through it so that you don't have that lasting distrust or whatever. What are some of the things that you do to try and minimize that value of despair time? So you do hypercare where you have people that understand how to work the system are right there to support the people doing it. You continually update, like we use process maps that have the transactional data, and then we create standard work on how to do it. So you keep reinforcing it, but it's also the why. And then if, the, if you do find gaps in it, one of the best things that we've done is if I have a process, it works technically, but it's really clunky maybe in the process. For instance, I had one in one, one of my factories. It took 12 steps the way the architect designed it for the operator to do it. So that's not going to be sustainable. Technically, it worked. What we did is we went back in, reconfigured it, one button push, and it did all the stuff and printed out the ticket for the first. You do that once or twice for somebody and they had to do it the hard way. They're bought in. This is great. It's so much easier. So it's just that human interface management, not to say, hey, shut up and find something to like about it. It's more like, all right, how do I engage you and make it easier to help me? Because if you think about it, they're helping you run your business better by using the tool. Okay. It's great if those things are on day one. So often those things are like day two or day three items for the user though, aren't they? We usually try to do a 90, 60, and 30-day connection with people in the training and really be positive about this is the why. Why are you doing this? For instance, with the government, we're doing it's This system will help the warfighter, and it will make it much better in the future. So that, that kind of engagement helps people, too, because then they have, you know, it's at 18 inches. We always said that 18 inches from your mind to your art. Very good. What are the what are the people thinking about embarking on some sort of digital transformation? What are what are the other things you've learned that are unexploded ordinance or minefields that they've got to get their way through that we haven't spoken about so far? Well, that's the whole idea behind the book. I didn't write the book on how to do industry for that all because it'd be a hell of a lot more pages. I use my mom as a barometer because she goes, I don't understand what you do, but I said, I'm going to write this book for people to think about strategy. How do I do people process and technology? Don't just dump to the technology because that's where you're going to fail, but really understand how do I digitally codify my process, but what capability do I need? If I had 
this capability. For instance, I go to an operator and said, if you had one thing or two things right now that would make your life better or make this process work better, what would it be? Well, if I could see this, I'm just making it up. Okay, that's a capability. That's where you need to go, not, hey, go look at this SAP GUI stream. You're going to do all this. That's, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, if you had this capability, I could give it to you with a system. That's what you need to make your business process better. Yes. And then it's about capabilities. Then you build the solution to those capabilities and show them this, although it'll be painful to learn, this is going to, this is what you asked for. And this is how it's going to do it. If you can engage the people on the front end, you'll get it on the back end. So like undercover boss, where do they always go? They always go to the shop floor. They don't go to the middle management to see what's going on. And that's really the power of it. Uh-huh. And in fact, start with them because that sounds like the ROI that you captured at Caterpillar was really saying, we need to stop losing these trucks and we need to stop doing hot parts. And that was all, and we need to improve quality. That was all capability driven. And then what are these capabilities worth? Yeah, exactly. And then in really industry 4.0, everybody thinks it's about throwing a bunch of IIoT sensors. It's not. What is the core system that's going to be what's driving your business? So normally it's an ERP system. Okay, great. Now what's not working there? And then how do you build it? There's no like out of the box, just throw something in and hey, we got it. It's capability building, using technology. And then the key thing is if you ever use Sigma, what was the biggest problem is you do a project, you put it in control, and then it would fall out of control. This technology, if you can remember nothing else about industry for that, oh, if you do it right, now you've used a system to measure things and that, that process will stand. If that stays in control and that's one stays in control, pretty soon you're reducing variation in a process. Just think about your cars these days. They, they'll tell you, they'll automatically slow down if something's wrong with it because they're measuring the failure modes. And it's really about measuring the failure modes and then doing something about it. Oh, I'm just, I'm just laughing because if I drive, if I drive my wife's Land Rover Defender from here to Salisbury, there's a point on the road where it constantly just shimmies a little. It just, and so I've spoken a lot and the guy said, well, the, it, the sensors obviously think it's trying to avoid something. There's nothing there that I can see. And it's a, it's a feature you have to turn. If, you, if I didn't want that to happen, I'd have to turn it off on every drive. So there are things where it's automation can be really, really frustrating. It, it can. And it's a, it's a journey, right? Okay. I'll try this. It works great. That stays in. Oh, this didn't work at all. It stays out. I wish there was an easy answer, but it's really about looking for capabilities or failure modes. One or the other, right? Predictive. What are you trying to prevent or what capability do you need? So somebody, some engineer somewhere said, I need this capability. They put it in and maybe Maybe not so much. Maybe we'll take it out. Yeah. Do you know what? This is that's the example that you were giving of it done poorly, where some engineer, without necessarily thinking about the passenger, the other thing is I can't reverse the car with the door open, right? Which is which seems like that would be really good to not be able to reverse a car with the door open. But if you have a trailer, you might want to open the door and stick your head out when you're reversing around the yard. So Well, that's one thing when I, I had young manufacturer engineers working for me, I said, you can do this job two ways. And especially when you have a union working for you, I said, you can go ahead and say, this is a process and try to hammer it in and get those people to buy in. Or you can go down and be a smart engineer and say, what would it take to do this, this, and this? You guys are the smartest people down here. And then build it in and get them to solve that problem for you. So you doing it. There's a hard way and an easy way. Some engineer says, oh, this is what people want. Well, maybe, maybe it's not. No, that's the hard thing. You win that. And that's all people want. 
people just want to know that they're part of the team and they're part of the solution. And if you can build that with them and make them run your business, that's what I always say. Don't work two levels down as a leader. Get those people to work two levels up. And if you can codify your business at the lowest possible level, you're going to get better business outcomes because now they're running your business. You're just giving them the tools to make them a lot more successful. And now when you get that buy-in, you're winning. And in the military, we do command by negation. So there's a lot of things that everybody thinks, well, you're an officer. You just tell people to do stuff in the U.S. Like, I'll tell them to do stuff. We're failing. They know what to do. And they've been giving. And command by negation is one of the big things that Industry 4.0 allows you to, because you digitally codify what you want done. And then they know the indicators and by exceptions. And once you give them those little tools, now they're making decisions based off from what you want them to do, not free-ranging it. It's really amazing. It's powerful when you understand it. Seems to me that one of your challenges must be then hiring or training your implementation teams to not take the tech arrogant approach and just go, there's no need to talk to anybody on the front line. We'll just give them a system. How do you, does that mean you have to train your own people? Does that stop you hiring from your competitors? What's the... No, it's, it's really about your processes, how you do your program management and project management. I think that's the key piece where we're different. That's what differentiates us from other competitors. And we're, you know, we're growing as a company, just our experience running it in a commercial world and now working in the government world and back and forth. I mean, it's really been powerful, but it's in your program management and your change management is how you have to manage your teams and the customers' teams together. Fab. Marty, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I wish I would have known how uh, how great the stuff I had in the military was. I probably would have wrote a lot more notes to how I was doing it. Well, Marty McFly, like the sports almanac, I had the sports almanac. I just didn't know it at the time. But when I looked back on it, you know, in manufacturing for 12 years, I said, I saw the future. Then I went out, I kind of went back to the future. You know, it's funny, my name is Marty, but just like Marty McFly, you know, I didn't know. And, but it, 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 all of a sudden I'm like, well, I do this. I started just putting these things together, man, by negation, that's where you use it. And this is how you can digitally codify it. So knowing that you're seeing the future when you're in the future is a good thing. I also think thinking from it, I suppose the commercial world, which if you said to people describe leadership in the military, they'd probably say command and control. And then, you know, command by negation is the absolute opposite of command and control and feels much more modern than many of our large companies appear to be in terms of their management philosophy. Spot on. That's what I said. I mean, our people are so well-trained in the military. I didn't appreciate our training systems and how we did it. Those people are experts. And it's just like anything else. That leader falls out, somebody else jumps in and they just go. They're not like standing around waiting told what to do. They just do it. And what about some book recommendations? So Speed of Advance by, by Marty Groover, available from all good bookstores. And Audible. Oh, fantastic. And what else, or what's been useful for you on your journey? Well, one of the recent books I've read, and I read a couple of his books, was Winning by Tim S. Grover, who was the personal trainer to Michael Jordan. If you haven't read those books, Relentless was his first one, and then Winning. It's just really powerful to understand how individually you have to make choices, and, and you can really power through anything and, and win. And then Extreme Ownership has been out a while by Jocko Willink, but it's still my favorite book. A lot of parallels in there. The, the stuff I talk about which is, is a little bit different as a ex-CEO, but all those things about being a leader you know, and driving those events can help any leader out there trying to get through you know, whatever problems they have. 
And then the, the last book is You Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. That's just an, if that guy got through all those things and you're complaining about, you know, something simple that you can't get through. I mean, it just, it's just different mentality out there, especially when you're a business owner. And the guy who had NetJets, I think, hired Goggins, didn't he? Like hired Goggins to come and live in his house. That's so funny. That is awesome. It's just he meets him and he thinks he's hiring him to be a personal trainer. And then Goggins sleeps at the bottom of his bed and wakes him up at 5 a.m. to go training. And it's just, just, it's just miserable. But he tells the story so well. You know, he goes down the gym and Goggins goes, right, we'll do 100 pull-ups. And he does 10 and he's, he's ready to quit. And Goggins is like, we're just staying here till you've done 100. It's just miserable. But it's funny. I was reading a book at the weekend and everybody wants something for nothing or everybody wants it you know, silver bullet. If people are overweight or unfit, there's no shortage of information about how to make that happen. And the books that you've all picked there are all go do the work. Andy Frizzella, one of my favorite podcasters, MF CEO, do the work. That's it. You gotta do the work. There's no shortcut. Just like business transformation, digital transformation. There's no transformation without pain. There is not any transformation without pain. I'm sorry. There might be a few shortcuts, but there's not things you could do to make it less painful but there's nothing without pain marty it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today thanks for coming on the show thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did if you'd be kind enough to leave a review it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community for all information relating to this episode you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast where you'll find some cracking show notes additional reading and links relating to our guest There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.